The Murthy Law Firm has been clarifying U.S. immigration laws and procedures for foreign nationals since 1994. Teleconferences and podcasts were added to the resources available online in 2012. We are happy to offer this free service. Please listen to copyright information and restrictions at the end of this recording. Now, we are pleased to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Welcome. I'm Sheila Murthy, President and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm. Thank you so much for joining us today for this conference session on tips and strategies in order to safely file H-1B cap cases during this really strange, tough, and bizarre time in the history of the world. I am joined by two of my esteemed and brilliant colleagues at the Multi Law Firm, our managing attorney, Aaron Finkelstein, and Kevin Andrews, who has also been with the firm for many years and has a lot of experience in filing H-1B cap subject petitions. So as I started in today's unprecedented climate, clearly we all need to understand how to adapt our business practices so that we can protect both the business, our employees, and our own sanity and good health. We, as H-1B employers filing petitions, each of you can still safely file your H-1 cap petitions for your employees because, as you well know, you won't need to start to put the start days earlier than October 1st of 2020. And so while it may seem like a really bizarre time for everybody, it is certainly important for us to look forward to how we can get back to a sense of normalcy, do our petitions, hope hope that everything comes back to normal. Based on everything that's going on in the world, we expect that things should get back to normal in a few weeks, and that way we can continue to be successful as business owners and employers processing petitions for your employees. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Aaron. Aaron, if I can ask you to talk about how businesses should adopt uh, and adapt to processes during this pandemic. Yeah, thank you, Sheila. You know, it's funny because it's definitely not business as usual. So number one, we have to own the fact that we're not going to have the same type of access and have the ability to do the same types of things. But it is business. It's our businesses. It's our employees. It's our uh, uh, babies, so to speak, that we built brick by brick. And so we really need to take every effort that we can to protect it and to keep it going as we kind of get through what we hope will be as short a situation, as short a crisis as possible. One big thing about adopting, adapting during these unprecedented times, so some things come up like work from home, remote systems, modifying expectations from clients so that they realize that, yes, there's a new normal in town and we're going to provide you the same services and the same quality of services but if our infrastructure, meaning somebody else's infrastructure, because Murthy, we're very well set up, but if somebody's infrastructure is not set up the way that it needs to be set up, that yes, they're still intelligent, they're still capable, it's just going to be one, or, instead of doing a one step to take care of you, it might be two or three steps. Also acknowledging clients may be going through their own downturn and their own situation, since we're all experiencing this together in every industry, in every area, uh, with, of course, the restaurant business and the uh, the direct service business being hit the most. 
So looking to deferred agreements uh, concepts where if a client says, I can't, I can't, I don't need your services, what should I do? Here's the check back. Here's when we'll come see you again. Here's when we'll follow up. Let's not just close it down and call it an act of God, but let's try to find other ways to make sure that we keep those contacts alive because this will not last forever. And we know that when things come back, that we'll be able to have the same, hopefully the same smart, capable, incredible entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs and businessmen and women and people will be available that we can use them as our resources to go forward. Many states that we see have shelter in place orders and you have to check out what they are. Some are more restrictive than others and they impact how your employees can come to work and they impact how work can be performed. For example, uh, some states have something called essential businesses where they say everybody must be at home or shelter in place. However, if you're an essential business or if you're part of a critical infrastructure, you guys can come into work, you guys can do stuff, uh, but you need to still practice all the CDC requirements, the social distancing, the hand washing, and so on and so forth. The, the masks now that they're recommending when you go out in public or in grocery stores, and so on and so forth. Maryland has a law, and you and of course Murphy Law Firm is located in Maryland, has a law that law firms are considered essential businesses. And so law firms, because we support the courts, because courts are the infrastructure that makes sure that the laws are followed, even laws in COVID-19 need to be followed. So it's considered essential business in Maryland. So again, something like that is something that's important because it allows flexibility for the lawyers to be able to support and pivot to focus even for clients, for example, that are going through downturns that need to deal with layoffs or furloughs, God forbid, or anything else, to be able to comply with the law being available to help you, as I mentioned, to help employers is something certainly that's critical. Technology is another issue that comes up. Remote access for employees who work from home is absolutely critical, and many people have different levels of remote access. Uh, some questions that we've seen come up could be whose equipment are you using, what's the liability, um, how good is your firewall, how good is somebody's internet, how much should an employer be reaching out to help somebody, how much should the person, how much should the company be bridging the gap, how valuable is that job when the person is re working remotely. And so a lot of times you'll see with remote work that something that can be done, as I mentioned before, in one step takes three or four steps to be able to be done. Uh, access to teams on the phone are critical and everything that we've seen talks about making sure that your teams are in constant communication, even perhaps setting up very unique or individual teleconference touch bases if there's a coordinator or there's a, um, or there's a, a person who is directing what's going on within a team to make sure that that person has a touch base policy to make sure people are okay. Um, all of these things are important to try to give a feel of not business as usual, but that there is a usual to the new type of environment that we're dealing with. And I think all of that stuff is absolutely critical. Uh, we know that essential services have been keyed in for USPS, United States Postal Service, FedEx, UPS, uh, continue to remain essential even during shelter-in-place orders. We know also you'll see your Amazon guys delivering stuff, and some of the food places are delivering stuff also. All of those things are grocery stores, for example. All of those things are absolutely, uh, are absolutely critical. 
Uh, but one question that comes up as you have a team working from home is how many people you can essentially have work from home and still be a credible infrastructure and still be something to go forward. Uh, generally speaking, most companies cannot deal with 100% infrastructure from home, but certainly if you're looking at something where you perhaps could say 70, 80%, it's kind of doing that dance. Uh, Kevin will probably know the name of the dance. It's slipping my mind. The one that says, how low can you go, so to speak? And that's <laughs> something that, that is a constant effort to kind of figure out because you're balancing where you want your employees to be safe but at the same time, you want their paychecks to be secure also. So you have this reality of, I want you to work from home as much as is humanly possible, but also I want to make sure that I can keep jobs for you, that I can keep the company intact to type to weather the storm. So I'll give you an example. Murphy Law Firm, we have an incredible ability. We were able to spin on a dime, I think, and do almost like an 80% work from home. But there's a core 20 to 25% that needs to be in the office just to field mail, to deal with final packages, to uh, be able to assist the other team that's working remotely for specific things that they need, to be able to continue to update and to service clients. So even though we're facing a new reality, our motto is that from the client's perspective, normal should just be normal. And if things are taking a little bit more time, then we explain up front that this is the new normal, but there will be normal, there will be continuity, and there will be complete um, uh, um, consciousness of somebody's package from beginning to end. And those are the types of messages that are clearly something that's critical to send to your clients to make sure that they're taken care of and that they can move forward. So I think Aaron, those are... Thank you. Uh, thank you. Oh, oh sorry. Aaron, Did you want to say something, Kevin? Yeah, Aaron, just, just real quick, Eric, uh, uh, to both of you, just, uh, you know, because uh, along those same lines, I think, um, you know, USCIS has streamlined some things, like allowing for us to send uh, copies instead of the uh, original signed signatures, but we still have to send checks. Right, so um, so there, there's original some areas check, where it's original signed, correct amount. It can be, uh, you know, other stuff. It could be a hey dot gov, or, but not for most of it. And again, we can't send everything, and we know that there are systems that we want to process and do this right. So that makes perfect sense. So next, right. can and I ask you, Kevin, to talk a little bit about what relief? And we can go over this briefly because I think people are much more interested about really the H1B cap cases during COVID-19, but. Just to put everything into context, maybe we could briefly talk about the FFCRA or the Families First Coronavirus Response Act that was passed earlier, about a month, last month, and yeah. what it can offer to employers briefly because that applies presumably to H-1B workers as well. Absolutely, but that was the limbo that Aaron was asking about earlier, just so we're clear. <laughs> um, Thank you, Kevin. <laughs> The SFCRA, the Families First Coronavirus Response Act, uh, just as a big picture thing before we get specifically in the H-1Bs and the lottery season. So this is a, a, a new law that was passed. It's effective from April 1st through December 31st of this year, and it reimburses, I'm sure a lot of employers on the phone are actually quite aware of this, but it reimburses American employers uh, with fewer than 500 employees for tax, with tax credits for the cost of providing paid leave for COVID-related reasons. So th the way that essentially breaks down is providing a two-week paid sick leave for individual employee employees who are actually quarantined or experiencing COVID-19 symptoms or seeking medical diagnosis, which is, you know, an issue right now of actually getting 
testing, so uh, if experiencing symptom, symptoms is sufficient enough. Uh, also, two-week paid sick leave at two-thirds of the employee's pay if they need to have a bona fide need to care for an individual who is quarantined or a child who is uh, symptomatic of COVID-19. Finally, an additional 10 weeks of paid expanded family and medical leave at two-thirds of uh, the individual employee's regular pay if they need to care for a child uh, for COVID-related 19, COVID-19 related reasons. And again, that's for employees that have been working for at least 30 calendar days. So this is just uh, some additional relief that the government is providing to offset the economic disruption caused by the, the global crisis right now. And hopefully most of you on the call don't have anybody in your employees that are either uh, suffering directly or their family members are, but just statistically it's possible but luckily, still, depending on the state you are, it's more likely to impact certain regions or certain parts of the country which are more crowded. Um, and hopefully they're all safe, as are all of you and your employees. So from a, what else can all of us as small businesses, what else can we do? What, do we, what can we keep in mind during this time as other options? As many of you are aware, under the CARES law that was passed about a week ago and the end of March, the last Friday on March, uh, and they were supposed to issue what's called the Paycheck Protection Program, or PPP, um, which for many of us in immigration, also PPP stands for Premium Processing Program, but this is the Paycheck Protection Program offered by the SBA, or the Small Business Administration, and there's, it's a fairly simple form. As employers, you're eligible to apply, though I know that there's a lot of media about how impossible or difficult it is to find a lender who will accept the loan, take it, and nobody knows when the payout will happen, when the loan will be taken, when you will get the funds, but hopefully more information will be forthcoming from the SBA and from the federal government. And there's even talk about an, another $1 trillion new law that may happen uh, by the end of April. Uh, there's also the economic injury disaster loans for certain employers to apply. There's debt relief uh, applicable. There's certain bridge loans. Um, all with lower interest rates in majority of the cases. Only the payment, uh, the Paycheck Protection Program allows you to uh, get a waiver and not have to return it. As they call it a forgivable loan, only if you don't lay off any people or keep your staff uh, either fully or most of the staff, and that they, the the pay cuts or the for, the pay cuts that you do for your employees are not huge. Uh, but they're less than 20% of a person's pay then of certain certain employees, then the, you can still take advantage of the pay Paycheck Protection Program. So there's a lot of stuff out there. I'm sure all of you have through your state, through either your state chambers of commerce or local chambers or through your payroll providers or benefit providers learned about all of these and how you as businesses can continue to stay in business and try to operate, though it's a lot of work and a lot of, a lot of stress and efforts to try to juggle all of this because everything is so fluid and so new and nobody knows for sure exactly what it, what's going on. Uh, of course, as a business, as employers, the issues that you're probably facing are access to capital to make sure your workforce is staying in a happy frame of mind and able to continue to focus with all of the fears about layoffs, furloughs, pay cuts, etc., the kind of inventory and supply chain shortfalls that could exist because if people aren't able to travel due to the, um, um, you know, the orders from governors across the country where they are doing the stay-at-home or shelter-in-place orders, then a lot of the um, supply chain, you can't get your supplies to do work in certain industries. 
Um, there's also uh, increased maintenance and cleaning costs for most, including offices, let alone other kinds of businesses. Uh, there's possible business interruption insurance, though I think a lot of the insurance companies have already said, well, guess what? This is not covered. That's my understanding from most people. Changing market demand, access controls, and of course, there's movement restrictions that we talked about from different states. And in terms of marketing, as Aaron pointed out earlier, you want to communicate with your customers about your operations, about your availability and the measures that you have implemented to make yourselves available to continue business, and that includes your employees, to tell them that, yes, we are definitely continuing with the H-1B petition processing for you because you know that when things become better, some of these key high-tech employees are going to be very difficult to replace or find, and we're back to square one where the only thing that will stop you from becoming even more successful and profitable is not having the right talent at the right time, at the right place. So hopefully we can all orchestrate this wonderfully. So with that, I'm going to jump to ask um, Aaron to discuss the H-1B cap lottery issues and the LCA issues. Sure. So, you know, again, the one thing I will tell you is that at this point, when you're dealing with your uh, with, with unemployment rates that are looking at, like right now, 6.5 uh, million people, I believe, sadly, that I have to mention that, but that means when you have somebody or some somebody or a client or something that's working well and you want to keep it working well, you really want to make sure that that case gets filed well. You want to make sure that the person's taken care of. You want to make sure that the H-1B is being looked at from top to bottom, and you need to make sure that that's happening. It pays to dialogue with your attorney, with your who's ever doing your H-1Bs, and make sure that they can give you confidence throughout the process. It's something that we've been doing strongly with our clients, and I think it's important that people know that their lawyer has that kind of uh, has that kind of continuity, especially because every little bit matters in this situation. Okay, so now some good news. You know, the H-1Bs this year had good news and bad news, an interesting fact. H-1Bs had a 37% increase in the number of filings that took place in the pre-registration. The result was because of the increased number of filings that it was a lower percentage of cases that were actually picked in the caps. However, a lot of those filings could be because it only cost 10 bucks, the you know, less than the less than the cost of a decent lunch to be able to register somebody, and a lot of the people that were registered may not have clients or locations though they're supposed to. So there's a good chance that even though the the first go round of the cap was picked and they already did their picks uh, from Friday, March 27th, and they continue to pick, and they continue to show who's been picked in the lottery. If your case still says in process and it doesn't say that it was picked, there's a good chance in 90 days from now that some of those cases that were picked, in fact, will not process, or other cases will get denied through lack of actually having a bona fide end client, and there's a good chance that there'll be a healthy second uh, lottery uh, that will take place 90 days from now. So that's something to look forward to. And for our employees that did not get picked, we should say it's to be, not it's over, but it's to be continued to see what happens. One thing about filing the labor condition applications while we're dealing with sheltering in places that the entire system is web-based. So filing online continues and LCAs continue to process. However, there is a question that comes up in the FAQs about LCA postings where no one's in the office. 
So they're asking what you're supposed to do and what's considered good faith compliance, and that's something that's required that it must be available and be seen by the U.S. workers to make sure it's something that can, that can happen. So, so, for example, an H-1B that's providing notice to workers electronically, either through the company's intranet or if it doesn't have one, through direct email. The regulations also provide where the company's employees lack computer access, hard copies of the notice may be given individually to each worker, like flyers, and this could be done by a hard copy mailing. In such a case, a hard copy posting at an empty work site would not be necessary. Uh, in fact, if you just do an, a hard copy posting at an empty work site, later on it can come up a question as to whether that posting was adequate or not. But even during these difficult times, it's still posted to simply comply with the posting requirements and for the DOL to process the LCA. So you can go ahead and post, but again, there's a question about how good that is. It's better to do the notification that little bit more to make sure U.S. workers can see it so that it just puts away the question of any issues if possible. So Aaron, just to clarify on that, like uh, uh, just because, you know, for the situations where the uh, location is the end client, the expectation is to send email notification to whom, the end client employees or the, comp the petitioner's employees? So you're looking to send the notification to the petitioner's employees is what I, what I feel. What do you think about that, Kevin? Well, um, when you're at the end client location, who's effectively getting noticed are the end client employees. And so I think to cover, to, for the electronic notice to have the same um, effects as the physical notice, it, you know, if you're posting on the intranet and sending to the employees of the petitioner only when none of those people would be actually working at the location to even need notice, I'm not sure if that's going to cut the mustard, um, you know, even in a time of COVID-19. Uh, uh, yeah, I hear I, you. The only problem that I have, and I hear what you're saying, the only problem that I have with that is you may not have access to the end client's employees to be able to send out such an electronic notice. So again, mm -hmm. it raises questions about how to comply with the FAQ. I don't think there's an easy answer to this question. I think the goal is to have good faith compliance to the best of your ability. And then I think the government's going to have to recognize that a pandemic happened and that you did your best and that, sh that has to be good enough or that's the argument that you'll have to make. What are your thoughts about emailing the HR of the client location, the notice? To show yeah, I don't have client. a problem with it, but my question is, does the HR have a requirement to post it? I don't think the HR has a requirement to post it, but the, they, they may have a requirement to put on notice because the posting requirement is ultimately the petitioners, but right. if the petitioner has to put on notice somehow, and uh, you know, the most effective way I can put on notice when everybody's in shelter in place and I don't have these direct people's direct contact information is you know, letting their human resources people know. As opposed to yeah, again, only I think it's not—it's not a bad idea. Again, I don't see that there's a requirement written in the law that like that. And I'll tell you what I'm afraid of a little bit. But Kevin, I hear you, and I don't think it's a bad idea. I think it's a case by case. I'm worried that if we start sending it to every HR, especially if it's multiple people or multiple situations, I'm just worried about how they're going to be accepting it in the circumstance. 
So I think yeah. people have to do a judgment call. It's a case by case. I think it's a actually I think it's a brilliant idea to try to deal with this and to show good faith compliance. I, I love it. But again, I think every employer has to think about it and say, will this work for me, or am I going to potentially lose my client when I don't want to risk the client? And only right. the employers understand their relationship with each client. Absolutely. Excellent discussion. I appreciate both of you explaining it so that all of our listeners in this conference call uh, can can kind of see how these issues play out. And I'm sure you have these discussions internally and try to figure it out, especially because things have changed. So in terms of USCI's accommodations that are happening during COVID-19, what are the kinds of changes that the USCI has try to help out H1 employers at, at the, in this climate, Kevin? Uh, yeah, so while DOL hasn't really put any uh, 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 flexibility on the LCA posting requirement, USCIS has definitely, as I alluded to earlier, given some flexibility with the uh, wet signature requirement. So what USCIS is allowing right now is to send copies of the signed uh, wet signature documents. Their instruction is for us as the attorneys uh, preparing the filings to keep the originals and we're, you know, we have a process internally for doing that in the event that they're asking, you know, they audit for them later. Uh, but this flexibility let, lets us, like Aaron mentioned before, uh, you know, operate with 80 whatever percent of the staff outside and still effectively uh, work through the, the H-1B lottery season because we're able to, uh, everybody's definitely getting much more acclimated to technology and being able to, you know, uh, splice in documents, you know, we, we can build the, the petition uh, digitally, splice in the signed forms after they're scanned in, and it's really just, like I said earlier, that one limitation about only accepting checks or money orders for the H-1B petitions, because the only thing that can be filed with a credit card form are filings that go to lockboxes, and that's not going to be the case for the H-1B petitions that go to direct USCIS service centers. So um, in the so we're we're still operating in the 19th and 20th century with uh, the money part of the filing, but we're in the 21st century in every other sense with the preparation and building of the filing. Good point. And I think to the extent that people may end up using either law firms or or you know having hopefully they will have the available resources like I know we at Multi Law Firm certainly do to be able to put the entire case together for employers, for companies, for petitioners. Uh, you know, print out the documents because we have, as Aaron had explained earlier, the 25-30% of the staff still continuing and going to work each day so that we can take very good care of our clients because, believe it or not, I know it sounds crazy in some states, but I know Aaron mentioned it, law firms and lawyers were part of the judicial system to protect the, the, the you know, protect fairness and the judicial, the judiciary. We are considered an essential business and so, and certainly in this, at this time, protecting people's statuses, H-1B petitions, filing them in time, filing the extensions so that people can enjoy CAP-CAP extensions. All of that is clearly highly essential and required. And so we can actually do all of the signing, print, presenting it, printing it out, sending it by FedEx, along with copies of checks, et cetera. I know most of the employers and companies are mailing their checks in as well uh, to the law firms or to your lawyers to file. Um, Next, uh, we will talk briefly about the IT Serve Alliance decision, which I'm sure many of you are aware of. And the reason we think that it's extremely important to mention that is 
we believe that that will help you to make a stronger case when if you get an RFE, it'll help you to respond to issues and present the package carefully. And if, God forbid, the USCIS uh, has the unmitigated gall to try and deny a good, strong petition case, that I'm sure most of all of our petitions that we file are, we believe, rock solid, then challenge them in court. And I know most employers always hesitate to sue and file lawsuits, but we found that those are extremely valuable and beneficial. So for those of you who may not be very familiar with the IT Serve Alliance decision, I'm also proud to say that I am one of their legal advisors for the IT Serve Alliance, uh, which is over a thousand employees, uh, employers uh, of IT technology companies. And um, I'm sure some or many of them are on this call as well, uh, this conference call today. But practically, basically on March 10th of 2020, the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia basically uh, invalidated the USCIS's 2010 uh, memo deterred to determine the employer-employee relationship, including third-party site placement memo, and the you know, and the other uh, memo uh, in 2018 regarding the requirement for contracts and itineraries for H-1B petitions involving third-party work sites, as well as the 1991 itinerary regulation specifically for consulting companies seeking H-1B non-immigrants. So really, really beneficial and helpful victory for uh, companies that do consulting type of work. As the court recognized, the H-1B petitions have historically allowed the growth of a business model where the U.S. employers obtain H-1 workers who are trained and in the much-needed high-skilled information technology areas, which are in high demand and short supply in this economy, and to provide such persons as temporary workers either to other larger U.S. companies, to federal and state governments, etc., that require IT assistance for a certain period of time. And uh, the USCIS has obviously withdrawn their long-standing guidance memos and their prior positions to change all of their policies in the Trump administration, which has either caused H-1 approvals to, you know, to really dramatically either be reduced or issuance of RFEs to be dramatically increased, um, which obviously has caused a great deal of consternation among all of the companies and employers. So the couple of important points that the judge or the court said in the findings is that the current USCIS interpretation of the employer-employee relationship requirement is inconsistent with its regulation and the U.S. Department of Labor regulation on who is an employer. Um, And because the USCIS did this through a memo without proper rulemaking, that it violated the Administrative Procedures Act, and hence it is not enforceable. I love the judge's language about how the how the, the, the government is behaving in an arbitrary and capricious manner. It was a really slap on the wrist to... Uh, the USCIS, also that the USCIS requiring employers to provide proof of non-speculative work assignments and the duration for the entire duration of the petition is not supported either by the statute or the law or even their own regulations. Um, And hence, that was deemed as arbitrary and capricious as applied to the plaintiff's uh, visa petitions. Um, and they again said this was applied without rulemaking and hence and, and violated the APA and hence cannot be enforced. And finally, they also said that the USCIS has the authority to grant visas 
for less than the entire requested three-year period. But even for that, the USCIS must provide its reasoning behind any shorter term time, shorter time frames um, more clearly. So clearly something for all of us as employers to keep in mind and to challenge the government. And please don't be shy, scared, or afraid to challenge them because we have found, and I'm sure most law firms and lawyers filing these lawsuits have found that very often the government is actually approving the petitions without going through the case entirely through the lawsuit in majority of the cases because they don't want to have another IT Serve Alliance case where the whole world can talk about how the government is messing up. So with that, I am going to ask Kevin to talk about the 90-day window to file H-1 lottery cases that now exist. Sure. So I remember when the registration process came out, uh, it feels like eons ago, but it was only months ago, and there was a lot of uncertainty surrounding it and how it would work, and there was a lot of resistance from myself included about its implementation this year. And looking back, <laughs> it's like a blessing in disguise. It's one of the silver linings in this COVID-19 cloud because under the old system, all of the H-1B lottery cases would have had to have been uh, filed in the first five days in April. We would have already been, uh, have filed all the cases already. And with the registration process, um, another byproduct of it was providing a 90-day window to file the H-1B lottery case from the time that we find out about the lottery numbers, which we just found out about um, earlier this week or last week. So this additional flexibility is going to be something I think that a lot of companies are going to need to be thinking about in uh, strategic terms, not just because of the short-term nature of the projects, but also because of the economic volatility created by COVID-19. Um, it's a possibility that the project anticipated when the registration was filed and the case was uh, selected will be for some client that is lost and then another one comes and is lost and another one has come and is lost and another one has come uh, at the time that the 90 day uh, uh, before the 90 day window is up and then the case that you're filing um, uh, maybe it's going to be closer to the end of June would be for a project that you didn't even know existed at the time when you did the registration not that there was no work at the time of registration but that the uh, nature of the projects had changed so much so it, it would be I think um, probably strategically in a lot of people's interest to wait towards the end of that 90-day period to file the petition because um, you're not going to be able to file the petition for one project and then if it's lost, uh, withdraw that petition and refile again. Um, you're going to have to uh, file with the, the final project uh, within the window of time. Um, unfortunately, there's no ability to substitute beneficiaries here. So while the nature of the work can be adjusted a little bit, the uh, individual who is intended to do the work cannot be substituted. So a little bit of flexibility with the 90-day window, and I think a lot of people are going to have to push that and use a substantial portion of that to survive uh, through to October 1st. Now, Kevin, I heard a lot of cases um, where there are some guys who had like a STEM OPT that was expiring in sometime in April or early May. Um, mm -hmm. And so does that impact their ability to use the whole 90 days and, you know, dealing with cap gap issues and such? How does that work? That's a really good question. I would say yes, 
because you do have to have a petition filed to be considered in the cap gap. And you know, filing and selection were one and the same before, but now it's two different things. So um, I mean, my I, I think we're in a little bit of uncharted water here, but my interpretation of that would be that the registration would not be enough, that you would need to have the filing also to secure the cap gap work authorization. Yeah, I would Good agree. Point. And Excellent. I think that everybody that's got that 90 days, don't be lulled into this idea that you have 90 days. If you've got people on F1 OPT or STEM OPT, you've got to check when their OPT is expiring. Your 90 days might be a much shorter window. Check, double check, verify, as Kevin said, because it may create an issue where you get the cap case filed in the 90 days, but they're not able to work after it's filed. So just please keep that in mind. Very good point. Yep. Wonderful. Thank you. And yes, as we said, beneficiaries cannot be substituted in this whole new system, but the importance of checking dates for each of the H1 employees that you plan to hire is critical. Uh, because if their dates are expiring, then we absolutely don't have the luxury of the entire 90 days. Aaron, I know we talked a lot about in a, a conference just a couple weeks ago where we did the impact of immigration and COVID-19 on your business. Uh, we at the Multi Law Firm did a teleconference for all of our employer and company clients. We had over a 1,000 companies participate uh, during both for our current clients and future uh, and uh, prospective uh, uh, employers and clients. But what is this? 60-day grace period that exists for H-1B workers who are laid off or furloughed, and how can H-1B employers try to use some of that? Sure. So in November of 2016, with an implementation date of January 17th of 2017, there was a regulation that came out that created the 60-day grace period for H-1B workers upon cessation of employment. In other words, it doesn't matter if they're terminated or they quit, as long as their employment ceases, they have either a 60-day grace period or up to the expiration of their I-94, whichever is first. Now, just like in OPT, where the grace period in OPT is actually F1 grace period, you're in F1, and that's called a status called grace in F1, so the grace period in H1 means you're still in H1 while you're in this grace period which means that you do have the ability to transfer and you are considered in status during the grace period. So with 6 million people, like we mentioned before, I think it's 6.3, 6.4 million people that recently uh, filed unemployment claims, uh, it's likely that we're going to have a lot of these extensions of status, changes of status uh, that are going to be going on because of the layoffs. And this is something that while we're seeing it's something which strategizing, if people are doing layoffs or furloughs, it is something that's very strategic about how, what, and when to do it. For example, you might be in a position where if you're in H1 and somebody says cessation of employment kicked in for the 60 days, okay, well then three weeks or a month later, you're able to take the person back. Well, he's still in H1 or she's still in H1. Your petition's still viable. It could be the person could come back on that same petition. Or, for example, there's something that's called compelling circumstance EAD. And if a person has an I-140 approval and they're in H-1 and they're looking at a 60-day grace period, perhaps you're looking at a situation where you can file compelling circumstances. What's compelling? Well, look out the window. Look at the death rates. Look at what's going on around the world. Look at India's refusal to allow people to fly back. All of these things show we're in a pandemic. We're in a life and death situation. What could be more compelling than that, perhaps? Other things that you might want to look at is you might want to consider for employees that are running out of time, 
the suggestion of being able to shift into some type of humanitarian position, into an H4 where they can apply for EAD, anything where they can somehow maintain their status and be able to come back to the employer, back to you at a later date, is something that would be extremely helpful, especially if we're waiting out COVID-19 and especially if we're looking for premium processing to come back. So these are all things that could potentially happen, and we want to keep them in mind so that if you do deal with layoffs, it's not a bad idea to confer with an attorney who can help you strategize and plan so that not only do you explain to the employee, hey, this is not working out, but perhaps you can make it work out or create distances for it to be able to go forward. I do know that, for example, one company that I spoke to, the company was saying they had a significant downturn in business Instead of going ahead and laying off a third of their staff, what they did was they did amended H-1Bs, which were relatively inexpensive. I'm not saying cheap, but I'm saying much more inexpensive than doing extensions, for example, or doing new H-1Bs. And when they did the amendments, all they did was simply reduce the hours to part-time hours from 10 to 20 hours. And that was something that they believe made the difference for them to be able to continue making payroll waiting for the upturn. So there are strategies that take place, and it's something that's a good idea to confer with people to make sure that you go through them and you see which one is a customized fit to your particular situation. Aaron, real quick about that. Uh, with the 60-day grace period, um, I guess thinking more along the lines of the employee's perspective, but you know they're not able to find anything in the next 60 days, You know, just hypothetically, uh, it gets worse, COVID-19, then better, and so economically it gets worse, just hypothetically, just to map out our, our possibilities here. And um, so would you recommend filing like a change of status to B2? And then let's say, and then there's a, then everything massively upswings, there's a vaccination, and then the market rages to 30,000 points, you know, four months after that, all the job offers start lining up, and then, and then file a change of status from the pending B2 back to H1. What, what are your thoughts on, you know, if, if it goes in that kind of, I think it's a strategy. I think it's a good strategy. Look, it depends. Let's say, for example, you know, I've spoken to somebody, for example, that told me that his wife was on H1, and they're, you know, they were thinking of the H4 and the EAD as a possibility, and they said, well, my 60-day grace period started yesterday. When should I file uh, my H4 and the EAD? And my response was, file it today. And they're saying, but what if I get the H1 and what if I get this? I said, but what if you don't? And therefore, mm -hmm. you know, you file the H4, you get the EAD, now you've got a 60-day jump on the processing time so that if you don't get a job because of these crazy times, you'll be employable with an EAD, which is unrestricted employment. So, you know, I said the only thing that you have to do in that case is be really nice to your wife going forward. So That's going to take a long time to get processed, though, right? I mean, with yeah. no travel well, available... Well, that's the point. Once you file for any status, be it the B-2 or the H-4 or anything else, what you're looking at is a period of authorized stay to help you weather the storm in the U.S. without needing to travel. There are some people that come to us after denials, and they're saying, look, my I-94 expired three months ago. I got a denial. And as we all know, unlawful presence sets from the date of the denial going forward. And so we turn around and we say, look. Wow file a retroactive reinstatement type of case. And again, I think it's, these are all good strategies, and it's just very dependent on the circumstance. And I do think, Kevin, that's something that's definitely in the toolbox that we should take out and consider in the right time. Fair enough. And yeah. you know what? I agree with the H4 and the H4 EAD strategy, and that makes sense. But if people say, should I file the B2 today, 
while I'm looking for a job, that's more problematic because if you file the B-2 and both and the B-2 gets approved after the H-1B, then now you're stuck with B-2 status and you cannot switch back and start working based on filing of the petition, which you can do during the 60-day grace period. So again, we don't want to get obviously into every case-specific scenario, which is why hopefully either your law firm or the multi-law firm certainly is available to continue to guide and help you. I know we're very sensitive to try to wrap these conferences up within 30 to 45 minutes, and we're pretty much at the end of our 45 minutes, but I do want to stress that during this, this the reason, part of the reason this is such an unusual uh, situation besides the global health pandemic and every country and every part of the world being potentially affected by this, some to larger, greater extent than others, is that the crisis or calamity, the impact on businesses and the financial hit usually occurs sequentially. In this case, everything has occurred all together at once, which is why there's so much stress on organizations and how we can all try to maintain some level of normalcy, continue our business, continue hiring, continue processing, H1 petitions, taking care of your employees so that when we all come back, hopefully from this dark cloud passing, we will all actually come out stronger and better because we've learned certain things of how to work remotely in a better fashion, but also look at how immigration and H1 processes can continue to dovetail with Department of Labor regulations, USCIS regulations, and policies to make everything work. So clearly, as we all adapt to the new normal, uh, we want you to know that we at the Multi Law Firm are certainly available to adapt to what's going on with COVID-19, to continue to mentor, guide, and uh, hold hands and support each of you as you continue to deal with this crisis. And if the government changes the rules, changes their policies, does something different, we are ready to change uh, in, on a dime, as Aaron said earlier, because our goal is to support and continue to mentor, advise, and give you hope because at the end of the day, you are part of the reason the American economy is continuing to chug. You're paying taxes. You're doing everything good and right. And you're dealing with headwinds that are very strong. And we want you all to know that we can together make this work. So on behalf of Aaron Finkelstein, our managing attorney, Kevin Andrews, myself, Sheila Murthy, and the entire Murthy Law Firm family, we thank you so much for joining us today. Stay safe. And together, we will come out of this. Have a wonderful rest of the day. Thanks. Bye-bye. This is a free service. The content is the protected, copyrighted property of the Murthy Law Firm. Unauthorized recording or dissemination of these materials without prior permission is prohibited by law. Learn about our firm, how to engage our services, and more at www.murthy.com.